Hello and welcome to another episode of the A-Leagues of Our Own podcast presented by The Inner Sanctum. Where to even begin? It was a crazy week of A-League men's action that somehow seemed to get better and better as the round went on. Adelaide improved their aggregate score against last year's grand finalists to 9-0, whilst in Brisbane there were glimpses of the Royal Salona of old. Western Sydney and the Tillies both had scored five by half-time. Maybe if Bruno Fornaroli had tried a little bit, he could have done the same. If you're a goalkeeper at the distance derby, then you either had a very good day or indeed a very, very bad one, and the Bulls get the job done despite their 62-hour layover. My name is Lachlan Abel, and joining me today is Paletti. Hello. Afternoon. Christian Montigan. Hello, how are we? And back again for another appearance. G'day, Chris. Hello, Lockie. Before we get started, just a quick note on the Matildas. We are going to do a a dedicated episode to them later in the week where we'll cover the Chinese Taipei game as well as their 8-0 win over the Philippines. You can hear all about the Tilly's action then. Starting now with Adelaide United 6 and Melbourne City nil. He's very upset that he couldn't be here tonight, but we have a little voice note here sitting from Antonis. Hi, everyone. Would have loved to be on tonight to talk all things South Australian football after an exceptional weekend, as I'm sure you get into in a second. But again, what really stands out to me from this Adelaide United side is the amount of under 23-year-old players, 23 and under-year-old players they're playing. Starting Gauchi, Madonna, Yao, and Nessa and Rukunda. And then off the bench, Bernardo, who contributes with goals. Toure, who contributes with his own goal. Giuseppe Bovalina gets subbed on. And then on the bench, not used, Ethan Aligic. Luka Jovanovic hasn't even played this season yet. He's being eased back after international duty. So there's just so much talent that's not just getting minutes, actually contributing. And it's huge when you've got someone like Carl Viet in charge, who, again, you can argue about his tactical prowess and how high he is in the league when it comes to that. But what he's got that you just can't replace is that relationship with those players. He's a great man-manager, and the majority of these young boys, he's actually coached since they were 12, 13, 14 years old because he was involved in the SANTC system before he returned to Adelaide United in the coaching capacity. So he's definitely got that going for him, and it's that trust knowing how to use the players and the players knowing him and trusting him. And it's really coming off. <laughs> what can you say about the two results so far? It, you played the two grand finalists after losing your captain and Johnny Warren medalist. And you've scored nine goals. You haven't conceded any. And you've got six points from six. Pretty good start, isn't it? Um, and again, it's been a team effort replacing Craig Goodwin, which is the real standout for me. Viet mentioned that that you can't just replace a player like that overnight. It has to be a team effort. And United hasn't really gone into the transfer market for a Goodwin replacement. And that's when you see players like an Aaron Kunda, a Bernardo, to where they stand up and contribute with their goals, as well as the older guys like a Ben Halloran as well. Currently, being at those two games, you know, the excitement is palpable. These, when these young players go out and play like they've done the last couple of weeks, that excitement filters through to the stand and it's irresistible, you know? And the worst thing teams like Melbourne City can do is allow a young team like that the momentum because, as you can see, they can steamroll you and they can do it pretty quickly. Um, moving up for United, huge game against Melbourne victory in Melbourne, the original rivalry. First versus second, early days of the season. It's going to be a cracker, honestly. Um, we joke that there were so many goals scored by both sides this week. It's probably going to be a nil all. I can't see that happening. I reckon both sides will be keen to get a few goals against another top side from early days this season. It's a huge game. The crowd's going to be fantastic for victory. I know a fair few people, including myself, travelling over from Adelaide to catch this game. So, fantastic stuff. For me, United, the important thing is about when that adversity hits, when something doesn't go your way, when you're out of form, how do these young players respond? And how long does it take them to shake off those issues? And in that same, I guess way, how do these experienced players like a Ben Halloran, like an Isaias, 
how do they support these young players? So that's my question for United. But yeah, two weeks in, it's a fantastic place to be. South Australian football is pretty good right now. So really enjoying it. So Chris, this was an extraordinary game. They've beaten Central Coast 3-0, Melbourne City 6-0 this week. They've done the double over last year's grand finals, as I said. There were so many question marks with when Craig Goodwin left. Who could have thought they'd end up here after two weeks? You certainly wouldn't have predicted it. Uh, obviously, the naysayers could suggest a couple of factors into this that uh, Antonis probably isn't here to defend. So we'll uh, we'll get into him and his Adelaide a little bit. Both these sides aren't the sides they were at the end of last year. Melbourne City, I think we'll get back there. The Mariners, they've got some real challenges with the AFC Cup. I mean, Melbourne City also have the Champions League. Adelaide haven't gone away from home either. So you throw in all of those three factors. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what they dish up against a Melbourne victory side. And I know we're going to pick apart Melbourne victory in their performance in a little bit. But there is certainly an opportunity for goals. But being on the road up against a victory side that I think are probably in a bit better position than these two sides at the moment in terms of workload and where they're finding their way into the season will start to give us a bit more of a measuring stick. But at the same time, if you're a Reds fan, be very excited because these two te- these teams sorry, is performing so well for such a young side, as he touched on. So much youth. It's just going to be a matter of can they maintain them? Can they hang on to these players? We're going to see some of these guys like Iren Kundo. As soon as he turns 18, he's going to be in the absolute crosshairs for clubs in Europe. And that's going to be the big question mark for how their season proceeds. Yeah, Pelletti, Antonis raised that he loved the performance of their under-23 players. That was consistent across the entire league this weekend. We had 12 goals scored by players under-23. That's a league record. Um, And according to Aussie Scout on Twitter as well, 27.15% of all minutes in the A-League so far this year have been played by those under-23 players. It's sensational, right? Yeah, absolutely. Youth development is the future, and Adelaide United are one of the clubs leading the way along with the Mariners. Um, I think after yesterday, uh, everyone in Adelaide was left asking just one question. Goodwin who? Like, <laughs> you know, for all, for all the talk, they've had no problems replacing him so far. Like, just just pick a kid out of the academy and, and let him run wild. Like, uh, I mean, Aaron Kund is an absolutely special talent. We know he's been around for a while. Um, is it just a case of, you know, does he go to the first club that expresses interest once he turns 18? It, does he find the right situation for him? Who does he have guiding him? Because I don't think the right situation for him will be to, say, you know, go to a Premier League club that only wants to loan him out to Belgium or to, to Celtic or Rangers or something like that. But he needs to go to a club where he's actually wanted. I mean, we've seen, uh, I believe, rumours started as far as 12 months ago that Bayern Munich were very interested in him and we don't have all the information but from the sounds of it he wanted to stay at home with his family and his in his community around him until he turns 18 which I mean if you're going to get regular game time for Adelaide United in this kind of team and still have that interest on the back of it you can't really argue that that's a bad decision Christian. Yeah no 100% I mean Pelletti touched on it I mean he's got to have the right environment behind him you can't just go to a club where you know, you're not going to get much game time or, you know, that lack of development is going to be there. You know, you need to be somewhere where you're going to be wanted, like Pauletti said. I think he should probably stay for another season or two, even even when he turns 18, just to not risk, you know, going to a, a club, getting loaned out everywhere. I mean, how many times have we seen it with um, Australians going abroad? You know, Ozani, like similar example, coming back to victory. I mean, the list goes on. So, yeah, that's just one one concern I have, but I mean, talent alone, he's just, he's so good to watch. I was just going to say, uh, on this game, I've got a feel for Jamie Young. The man is old enough to be half of his opposition's father and he's getting <laughs> balls peppered past him in the top corner. He made some almighty attempts and that free kick's a great example of it. A lot of other keepers wouldn't have got that close and we saw lots of other keepers across the weekend not get that close. But to still be doing that at 38 years of age, playing against these kids that are, in Aaron Kunda's a case, 20 years his junior, 21 years his junior. It's pretty phenomenal that he's still out there. And uh, look, I won't be writing him off yet, but it must be tough going out there knowing that there's that sort of age difference and you're still trying to back up each weekend to turn it out against these guys. Of course, Pelletti, we can't undersell Joe Gauci's impact in this game. The penalty save at 2-0, that has the potential to completely change the momentum of this game. Oh, absolutely. If he doesn't save that penalty, it's game on. And, you know, if the A-League's... <laughs> Chaos happens every week, like as we saw with the amount of goals that were scored this week. 
chaos happens, who knows, 2-1 down, never late goal. Honestly, it was just... It, if that's not save of the season, then there'd better be an absolute ripper of a save. Like, we're talking pinky finger, tips it over the bar from the top corner from, you know, a free kick that's taken 30 yards out. Like, it, there needs to be something special to, to top that. I think there might be one in a, in a game later on that we can probably talk about that was pretty crucial. So we'll get to that. There was some some absolute howlers between the sticks, but there was some absolute screamers as well on the weekend, and I'm sure we'll get to that very shortly, Lockie. We will indeed. We're going to move now to Melbourne Victory 5, Newcastle Jets 3. Christian, this was a completely ridiculous game of football on a Sunday afternoon. Bruno Fornaroli, he's 36 years old. If Melbourne Victory fans hadn't forgiven him for his time at Melbourne City yet, I think four goals in the first half of football is a pretty good way to relieve those tensions. I mean, what can you say about Bruno Fornaroli? 36 years of age, some people suggesting maybe he was finished before this season commenced, but I mean, just casually scores a first half double hat-trick, doesn't he? Um, Second player in A-League men's history to score four goals in a half of football. The other was Jamie McLaren against victory, ironically, in that 7-0 drubbing, I think a couple of years ago. Um, and that Rabona, he scored as well. I know it took a deflection, but it just summed up his quality right there, just to be in the right place at the right time, that improvisation. Um, and yeah, I mean, it just it shows the difference it makes when a centre forward is given the service they need in the box, um, which is where I think also Azani is a player in that role who also was another standout performer. And I think for him also, he needs just a bit of more consistency to go with it, obviously. Even the Jets with their three goals, I mean, they did well um, going forward, you know, creating the space, which I thought victory struggled a tad, which we might get to a bit later on. Um, But um, even the penalty as well felt, I don't know, it felt a bit harsh, but I mean, I don't know what you guys think. Probably probably the right decision given given the law, but um, yeah, interested to see your thoughts on it. I think it's very similar to the one that we're going to talk about in Wellington a little bit later on where, it, you know, it clearly strikes the hand of the defender and, you know, I'm not a rules expert. I don't know whether it should be a penalty or not, but it feels wrong. It definitely feels like for Jets fans, they, they've been hard done by and they had the offside goal disallowed as well, which, you know, is contentious. Again, I'm not sure, but... You know, Chris, there are a few moments like that. Even the Costa Grosso's free kick that pulled out a really great save from Paul Izzo. These little moments that maybe if they went the Jets' way, it could have been a different story. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's a lot of coulda, woulda, shoulda, I think, for the Jets. And as someone who is uh, Newcastle born and bred, it's tough to see. But when you let someone score four goals, and it could have quite easily been six when he found the woodwork twice in the second half. I don't think you can complain too much about decisions. I think by the letter of the law, the handball call is right. But as you say, does it pass the pub test? Maybe not. If you've got someone from an, an external sport, like get a rugby league fan or an AFL fan to come and watch that and tell us that that deserves to be a goal um, gifted to the other side, then they're probably not going to agree with it. But it is the laws. They got that one right. I still feel they got the other one wrong with the offside. Um, I think the way the law reads is they've got to take possession and taking possession is an opportunity to have a clearance, which I think that's exactly what the player was doing, getting his boot to the ball. But here we are. Melbourne victory, deserved winners. Uh, again, you know, we can wax lyrical about Bruno Fornaroli in that first half. Uh, Daniel Arzani, the way he attacked down that flank as well. Uh, I think there'll be a lot of sides after having watched that game, though, that are going to be going after Daniel Arzani going the other way. He was found out a couple of times and it was, it was interesting down both for both sides, Newcastle in the second half, Melbourne victory in the first half, they clearly had that as their their modus operandi to go at the flanks, try and use their pace on the outside. And Newcastle looked a different side when they brought Bahaja on in the second half, that's for sure. Uh, his pace just opening them up um, and created some of those opportunities. And it was certainly for Taylor uh, a, uh, a pretty good second game, you'd have to say. Probably should have had three, got two. And look, the Jets have got some attacking prowess they haven't had in recent seasons. So that will at least give those in the Hunter a little bit of faith as they head into their first home game next week. Mm, yeah, Paletti Clayton Taylor was clearly the bit of positive news from Newcastle in this game. The first finish on the volley was somehow very subtle, but completely outrageous at the same time. And as uh, Chris mentioned as well, it could have had a hat-trick if not for that offside goal. Yeah, uh, Clayton Taylor, another ex-Sydney FC product. God, these, these just seem to be popping up everywhere around the around the A-League, man. Some 
I mean, yeah, he probably could have had a hat trick. As Chris said, could have, would have, should have. But at the end of the day, it's not. Um, I think the refs might have a little bit of explaining to do uh, with a couple of the calls that were made this weekend. Um, at the very least, uh, you know, the release of the uh, of the VAR audio, I think, is probably the probably the bare minimum. I mean, I know Football Australia are um, are doing a lot of good stuff in terms of you know referees' decisions and you know. Like, like there's been times where referees have been available to the media to talk to. Uh, there was one a couple of weeks ago, actually, that, um, you know, that I know of already this season. So, you know, they're, they're doing the right things in, in that respect. I, I will just slightly disagree with you on the referees point. I think it's a very fine line in terms of what do you do in terms of like admitting mistakes and, and as you say, like releasing the VAR audio. Everyone want, thinks they want to know how the sausage gets made, but when they actually find out, it's maybe not so palatable. And we've seen, you know, in the English Premier League, there's plenty of controversy over the last few weeks. And, you know, externally, nothing really seems to change. I think these things have to be driven internally. And as much as it, you know, seeing a, a copy of the audio for one of these VAR decisions, you know, might help fans in a particular circumstance get over one particular decision, I don't think it's overly productive in the long term. I'd have to agree with that, Lockie. I think, and again, I, I won't uh, try and lean on this uh, as an example for us too often, but I think if we look at rugby league and the bunker and the fact that it's broadcast over the speakers at the ground, it's a broadcast across the audio, all of what they do. They then have a, a representative in Graham Annesley who comes out and explains after the weekend what went wrong. And a lot of the time it is, yes, we got it wrong. That doesn't provide closure. It doesn't help the fans it's sometimes better for to have the the what if the what could have been to hang on to rather than the the clear outline of what the referee made a mistake and then you know it's also what it does for the referees because at the end of the day as much as we're thinking they've made a mistake when it comes out clearly they are human too and you know let's have a look at the percentages of of decisions they get correct through a game there's absolute thousands of decisions they're making in any one game versus you know and i can say this as a current newcastle jets fan there's certainly some of our defenders that are making a lot more mistakes than any of the referees are so uh, I think we better hang hang some of the players and coaches who are on a bit better wickets first before we go hanging the referees. Christian, for Tony Popovich and his uh, new look Melbourne victory side, he's got to be happy with the attacking output they created. I thought particularly uh, Zinedine Mashash and Daniel Arzani, their combination on the right-hand side, they're going to have a lot of fun this year between the two of them going forwards. But at the back, we know the problem for them last year was keeping the clean sheets and keeping balls out of their own net. They conceded three goals. One, okay, maybe a freak volley, um, but the other pace in behind and, you know, a scrappy kind of set-piece goal, that's not so good. Yeah, you're right. And I think after the game I saw, you know, a few comments um, floating around saying, oh, yeah, victory are back, victory are going to win the league, this and that. Like, yeah, okay, two games in, beat, beat a Sydney side, which um, is having their own problems, but we'll get to that later, obviously. Um, and then, yeah, conceding three goals, like you t- said to the Jets, I mean, before the season started, I sort of thought the Jets weren't going to have sort of that outlet up front to score. I don't know if Chris might, may agree or not, but, you know, to have that outlet to, you know, score consistent goals week in, week out. So for Tony Popovich's side to, you know, known defensively to be sound, I know last season was a blip, but that will be one area where, yeah, that's going to have to, you know, be a real focus for, going forward for the rest of the season because attacking-wise, like you said, I mean, it looks like it's pretty much clicking into place. Yeah, well, I would certainly agree with that. I, if someone had offered me week two, three goals away on the road to Melbourne victory as the Newcastle Jets, I think you would have taken it. I think Rob Stanton would have taken it. Had he known that they were going to concede five, it might have been a different story. But as you say, I uh, I certainly think that both coaches, and it's a comment I made in, in a chat group that I'm, I'm involved in around the A-League, is that, both sides, if I'm the coach of either of these sides, I'm going back to the drawing board because defensively, they were ordinary for big patches of the game. Uh, the five goals might have papered over those cracks for Melbourne victory. The three goals certainly haven't papered over them for Newcastle. And both these sides have got massive games coming next week. Melbourne victory host Adelaide United. Newcastle host Western Sydney, who also found a lot of the back of the net. So they're going to need to shore it up. And Newcastle had some real blemishes the week before as well. So... More concerning for Rob Stanton, but I still think there's got to be some concern for Melbourne victory and their fans. I mean, can you imagine an Adelaide attack next week? Yeah, it's going to have to sort out pretty quickly this week on the training park. 
if anyone can sort it out quickly, I think Tony Popovich and his defensive structures are possibly there. Rob Stanton might have a bigger job. All right. Well, we'll move on to Western Sydney Wanderers five, Western United nil now, and Paletti <laughs> sitting and watching this game like it's ridiculous that we think this could be the third most entertaining game or even the fourth most entertaining game. It's completely insane. But they came out of the blocks super hard. They scored five goals in the first half of football. That's just crazy. Yeah, I mean, somebody call Earth, Wind and Fire because there was a boogie at Wonderland on Saturday night. Um, you know, <laughs> not my proudest. Not my proudest, I'll admit that. Oh, look, Lucky Brook kicked it all off. with Again, I said save of the season earlier. This was possibly a goal of the season contender. Like, and we're only, you know, we're only two rounds in. I mean, honestly, if you're, if you're Marco Rudan, that first half is exactly what you want to see. I don't know what the instructions were at halftime. It could just very well be that the instructions were, okay, this game's clearly over, you know, go out there, work on your technical proficiencies and just don't get injured. Um, I mean, there were definitely points where it looked like they were trying to score. Um, but yeah, for the most part, it was it just looked like the second half was just yeah, let's go kick a ball around, let's just make sure that we don't get injured, sort of sort of vibe. I mean, if you're Western United, maybe you take the mercy rule and just take the three nil defeat if you forfeit at halftime. <laughs> does, does the score stand? <laughs> just do the, the old the old the old FIFA rule, just go and uh, take a few too many red cards early in the first half, <laughs> so you get the three nil right. Yeah. Score a few own goals in your own net, and yeah, forfeit. Chris, the inclusion of Lockie Brook was a controversial one, though, from Marco Rudan, but it was vindicated very quickly. Yeah, look, um, it's one of those moments as a coach, you uh, put your proverbials on the line and uh, it either pays off big or it can bite you in the backside. And in this case, Marco Rudan looks like an absolute genius. And I think if you uh, panned out with the camera after about 14 minutes, he would have been sitting back with his feet up with a very smug grin on his face, and rightly so. And uh, they continued on from there. Uh, they they were it was a strong performance as Paletti said. Interesting to know what was said at halftime because, as much as they look like they just took the foot off the throat, there was also some clunky moments from them at different points as well. Um, I'm sure that'll give them some things to work on. And look, if you've scored five goals, you're probably pretty happy to head up the uh, up the M M1 up to Newcastle this week and and take on a Newcastle side that we touched on just before. Have some defensive question marks. It's going to be a good opportunity for Western Sydney to continue to build that. And I would be very surprised if Lockie Brooks not in their starting 11 again. <laughs> that would be very surprising. On the other side of things as well, Christian, Western United, John Alawiski speaking after the game, he almost sounded just bewildered at what had happened. You know, there were a few different players saying, you know, we've never been in this situation before. We didn't know how to react. But they conceded five goals and very different manners as well. There were set pieces, there were long-range goals getting beaten on the brakes, like a lot of question marks around their defensive unit. I mean, it was only last week that we were sitting here talking about how they beat Melbourne City 2-1, impressive win. Um, yeah, we were saying how they were able to grind out a result. If there's anything about West United and John Aloysius' sides, it's being able to, you know, grind out a result. Um, but obviously this game, completely different. Like you said, a few set pieces just all over the place, really. Um, there was even like moments in the first half where, you could tell there was just no movement off the ball. I mean, for example, I saw Ben Garuccio a couple of times. Just You could tell he was frustrated. You know, He had the ball, just had no options at all. So, yeah, I mean, hopefully it's just for them. It's one of those games where, like one of those freak results, they just analyze the video um, and, yeah, go from there because, I mean, you can't play much worse than that, especially that first half. So, Paletti, was it Western United being bad, Western Sydney being good, or just, you know, the Wanderers go all right in cool temperatures. Yes. The, I, I don't have an answer for you. I, I really don't. I, uh, column A, column B, column C, like take your pick. They're all applicable. I mean, this is just one of those crazy A-Leagues games that, you know, if you were to try and capture it in the vacuum, you probably wouldn't be able to. Like, I think like that's literally all, all it is. is just put it down to one of those crazy A-Leagues games. It seemed we had a whole slate of those crazy A-League games. Paletti, it must have been a... Uh, I think it actually was a full moon this weekend, which might explain a whole lot of things, and that might be our explanation, Lockie. But I think, too, if you have a look and take some of those goals in, look at the first Lockie Brook goal. If you put Lockie Brook in that same spot 10 times, he probably only... Like, he probably finishes it into that spot three times. 
and it might be a little bit off a couple more and you're probably getting a couple of saves. So there's a few of those pieces that I think added up to it. And then as you, as you could see, as that built, once I had those two goals after 13 minutes, a lot of the Western United players just seemed to be really lost, really disjointed. Whereas last week they sort of had a bit more of that momentum. And I think they're very much appearing to be one of those sides that need to have that momentum. And it might be the key. Fast starts against Western United might be the way to get, get up and get running against them. And I guess only time will tell. We've only got a very small sample size after two weeks. Uh, I guess we'll take a look at them as they head off to their next opponents in uh, match week three. Christian Lockie Brook was the headline. He got the first two goals, but on the other wing, Nicholas Milanovic as well. He got a brace of his own and was spectacular that day. Yeah, they were brilliant. Um, I don't think before the game they expected you know two goals each in the first half, but I mean, I just thought they found it pretty easy to you know split open the West United defence, and like we touched on before, um, they were just a bit all over the place of defence, really. Um, but no, credit to them. I mean, you've got to be there. You've got to take your opportunities. And yeah, they'll definitely be happy with that performance. Just for them, it's about, you know, keeping that consistency moving on for the rest of the season, which I think they can do. Paletti, on to your, your favourite matchup of the weekend, the Australia Cup final rematch between Brisbane Roar and Sydney FC. You're giving me death stares through the camera right now. But it was a great performance from Brisbane Roar. Their rec- uh, return to Suncorp Stadium, of course, and plenty of people calling the Raw Salona name from the stands. It was, it was a great win for them. Oh, absolutely. A brilliant performance by uh, by Ross Aloisi's side. I think they, they were able to build on what they started at MacArthur the week before, um, you know, which was absolutely it was absolutely fantastic. I think just the way you look at it, it, it was a top-shelf performance. And, you know, I think if Ross Aloisi could capture that and, you know, put it into, um, you know, and put it into a jar, that's what you'd want. Like, a, it, it was kind of, it reminded me very much of the way they played the first 45 minutes against Sydney FC in that Australia Cup game, was that's what you'd want out of your side for 90 minutes every week. And that's what they got um, up in Brisbane on, on Friday night. Probably assisted a little bit by uh, blunder, calamity, brain fade, just, you know, whatever you want to call that from Andrew Redmayne. Um <laughs> that's peak A-Leagues right there, honestly. Like, uh, I don't know how else to describe this game other than, you know, a great performance from Brisbane and a shocker from Sydney. Chris, on, on Andrew Redmayne, I actually thought despite that error, he had a pretty good game. He made some really important saves early, like after that uh, mistake in that first half and probably kept Sydney in it until later. Yeah, I think you'd, you'd have to say that was uncharacteristic. I think we saw some of the best of Andrew Redmayne. Unfortunately for him, he didn't put it in for those 90 minutes. And there was a couple of really large blunders with the one that you're highlighting there for that goal that is probably the, what everyone's going to take away from the game. They look at a scoreline 3-0 and easy to point fingers at a goalkeeper. But as you say, there was certainly some positives from it. Uh, unfortunately, none of those positives reflected on the scoreboard for Sydney realistically because there won't be many Sky Blues fans. And I know Pauletti's sitting in this boat right now that are sitting there pumping their fists, cheering that uh, the Sky Blues went down 3-0. But... There's certainly a lot of us at the other end of town that are pretty happy to see where they are on the ladder. Paletti, we, we talked about earlier about the theme of young players doing well in the A-League. And it's it's this kind of mentality that seems to have started with the Central Coast and it's seeped into a lot of the rest of the competition. But Steve Corica maybe had a little bit of a different perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, Sydney FC have always, you know, considered themselves a big club and rightly so. They've been rather successful, and a lot of that has not necessarily playing the kids unless they've had to. Seeing that quote pop up on my, I said on my Twitter timeline afterwards, it felt very. It just didn't feel right that like the only reason you know I game was gone, so I put the kids on. Like if that's what even if that's what you feel, you don't say that out loud. Like especially not when you don't have a contract beyond this season. And for all, I, for all we know, this is an instruction from the club to, you know, like like for whatever. This could very well just be, yep, this is the MO he's been given from the club, you know, whatever, and we're just all, you know, getting, you know, getting worked up over nothing. But for the most part, like you've got all these teams developing youth, being quite successful with it, and then 
you've got Karaka going, ah, oh, yeah, game's gone, so who cares? Like, hmm. that's not how you develop kids. You don't throw them into situations like that. We, like, we, we saw this with Brandon O'Neill, who, you know, when Graham Arnold brought him in, absolute superstar, young kid, has gone on to do, you know, great things at, you know, different clubs, you know, around Asia. Um, Joel King got a move to Europe. Now, granted, his... his um. You know, his minutes came from the fact that Michael Zullo was injured and, you know, Steve Corica didn't have a choice but to play anyone else but Joel King at left back, but actually developed playing meaningful minutes, playing meaningful time, and then went on with the job. And we, we've seen a number of ex-Sydney FC talent get to work after they've left Sydney FC because they've been given meaningful minutes. Um, uh, Marco Tilio comes to mind, uh, Cameron Devlin comes to mind in spits and spats. We've seen Luka Vanovic do the exact same thing. Like when you actually put your faith in the kids, they repay that tenfold. So why does everyone but Steve Corica seem to be able to say it? It certainly begs the question, what does it do for team chemistry and team morale? Because if I'm a 21, 22-year-old youngster and I'm in the fringes of this squad for Sydney FC and I know that I'm only basically going to get a chance if we're up by three or we're down by three, by the sounds of what he's had come out and said there in that press conference, Corica, that's got to really hurt where you sit. And then if these players are coming off contract, and as you touched on Pletty, we know Corica is, but if he if he gets extended and then you're up in negotiations for a contract and you go, well, this is how I've been treated this year, why wouldn't you go and play at Adelaide, Newcastle, Central Coast, or anywhere else in the league for that matter, if that's the way your coach is going to view you, especially if you're the youngest of those young kids. Like you're, you're potentially sitting in that boat if you're 20 years of age. For the next three years, where the only match time you're going to see is on either end of a drubbing. And we've seen that happen, right? Like an example from this year is Will Wilson, who's went from Melbourne Victory to the Central Coast. Like you have that reputation from trusting young players. He's gone over there. He played round one against the Reds. He's played in the AFC Cup as well. That's the minutes he wasn't getting at Melbourne Victory. And, you know, Sydney FC, if, if they're not going to be willing to do that, then, you know, they've got to find the elder Australians if they want to play. And it's, it doesn't feel quite sustainable. Just on Corica, I think the comments that you guys mentioned that he said and, you know, his actions, you know, not playing the youngsters enough, maybe he knows that in the back of his mind that he's not going to stay on with the contract situation that you guys were alluding to. Um, because, you know, if you know that you're not going to stay on, if that's the case, then if I was Corica, you know, I wouldn't be playing the kids this season. I'd be, you know be playing more experienced plays, trying to get a result, you know, as opposed to, you know, looking ahead to the future. I think even if that's the case, Christian, surely you're coming out after this game and, you know, well, we had to chance our hand rather than I'll only put the kids on, you know, we had to chance our hand. That way, if it does pay off for you and they do manage to jag a goal back or two goals back, you've got confident players and you've got confidence in the squad. Uh, it's It just seemed a really bizarre moment at this stage of the season. If we were two weeks from the end, I, I could under, almost understand it and he knew he was on the way, his way out the door or he needed to win to get there. But yeah, certainly in terms of the way it sits at the moment, I thought it was a really bizarre comment for, for club culture. Christian, one last one. We saw um, 15-year-old uh, Quinn McNichol come off the bench for Brisbane Roy. He became, I believe, the third youngest A-League men's player of all time. We talked about a week ago of um, the young Western Sydney Wanderers player in the dub who came on at 14. And, and your perspective there was, you know, you don't want to bring on a young player in this kind of maybe losing environment and you don't want them to stagnate in that situation. Is it different for the Raw? If, if they're winning and, and things are positive, will that accelerate McNichols' development? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, for this game, I mean, basically it was wrapped up at 3-0. He came on, what, the last five, 10 minutes. Um, and the Raw have a vision, like we've been saying previously, of youth development and I think he's going to fit right in. So, yeah, it's definitely a perfect environment. Um, it's, he's not, you know, surrounding a club in turmoil or, you know, they're not losing games or anything. So you're not sort of damaging him in that respect. So, um, yeah, I think it'll, it'll work out fine. He'll keep gradually building up his minutes. And, yeah, he's a bright prospect for sure. We saw the comments, right, around, um, around Tali Yunus for the Wanderers, you know, bad for development. Brisbane are in a situation where they kind of don't really have a choice. Ross Alois is talking about the fact they don't have a transfer budget, which is, you know, uh, highlighted by the fact that they're playing, you know, 17-year-old Thomas Waddingham up front and he's their only striker, so they don't really have a choice in that respect. I still think 15's too young to be playing at 
this level and you know we all the talks of a national second division even then like i think npl's fine for these for these kids to be kicking around in and you know for for i mean who knows what happened with the with the old y league you know are we going to get are we going to get that back at some point because that'd be perfect situation like this when npl season's done these kids are still able to get competitive minutes into their legs and meaningful minutes they're playing players that are their you know their own size their own shape their own age and actually you know, again, meaningful minutes. And I think that'd be a situation like this because, yeah, I just, I don't know what it does for a player's development to be playing at such a young age at such a high level. We'll move on to the distance derby now and Wellington Phoenix 2, Perth Glory 1. This was, of course, Alan Stajic's return to Sky Stadium after he masterminded the Philippines' victory over New Zealand in the Women's World Cup. And... uh, Holy sale, he's not having a great start to his time he, at uh, Perth Glory. Made the mistake last week to cough up the equaliser and I don't even know how to try to justify what happened. He, it seemed like he just saw yellow and out of habit passed to one of his old teammates, Chris. Yeah, he certainly uh, seemed to forget which side he was playing for at Sky Stadium and you, know, you could almost forgive him if he wasn't a professional footballer who uh, should know that he lives... Uh, some thousands of kilometres away now, a, a former Wellington Phoenix gun. And, uh, yeah, he just obviously saw the yellow jerseys, felt back at home and a bit of uh, nostalgia and reminiscence and just laid off a nice easy one, which they his former teammates decided not to return back to him and instead bury in the back of the net. Christian, Wellington get their first win for the season. They, they picked up a victory. It was probably against the run of play. Perth Glory looked good in this game. They... Had a bunch of chances that Mark Beavers got the the equaliser off the uh, the set piece as well. But Wellington come back a good goal in transition, and then we get to the penalty situation. Now we talked about it earlier: the handball, the ball's going out of play already. Should it be a penalty? We've gone through that. We won't do that again. But regardless of what we think it was, then Alex Polson, that was a brilliant save for him in the penalty. I don't know if you guys noticed watching this live, but he's obviously aware that Adam Taggart is a bit of a stutterer when he comes to his penalty run-up. And just as Taggart stops his momentum, uh, Polson takes this little step to his left, and I reckon he sells Taggart, and Taggart goes to the opposite corner, but Polson's ready for it, and he picks it out beautifully, and he wins the game. That's a, that's three points for Wellington Phoenix. Yeah, it was a great save, and... Um... It's great to see, you know, such a young goalkeeper, you know, get an opportunity. We've seen, you know, Joe Gouchy for Adelaide um, and the like, you know, get their chance and prove their worth. So, um, yeah, really happy for him to um, sort of make a name for himself in that in that game. Uh, made a couple more saves besides that moment, but obviously that was a standout. Um, but I think Phoenix, they rely sort of more on the, I guess, counter-attacking game. You mentioned that Perth, you know, they had a few chances. Um, they were pushing a bit probably a bit more than Wellington, to be fair. But um, they've got the players up front, like Zawada, Barbarousas, who can really hurt you, you know, when you're not switched on at the back at any given moment. So, you know, they're a dangerous side for sure. I think a lot of people maybe un- underrated them before the season. Um, and, you know, for good reason as well. I mean, they don't really have a good track record in, in seasons past for, you know, going making a deep finals run. But... Um, yeah, I think for Perth Glory, Stadich will ultimately, he'll sort out the team. He'll start picking up some results. It's still early days, but um, yeah, interesting. Yeah, Paletti, Alan Stadich has made it quite clear in the media over the last couple of weeks that he doesn't seem too concerned about the results for the Perth Glory just yet. He's noted they only had the opportunity to play a couple of A-League practice matches. I think they had two against the victory when they travelled into Perth. And, you know, he seemed quite level-headed last week when they coughed up the two points, much more focused on the performance. How long before, you know, the shift to, okay, (laughs) we need to win games of football now? Probably rather quickly. Like, Perth's always a fascinating one, right? They're the the furthest team away from anyone else. They've got, you know, ridiculous amounts of travel both home and away. And we've touched on this before. There's a reason this game is called the Distance Derby. It's the longest road trip in, you know, club football. I'd say usually you're probably going to get a little bit more time with the glory, new coach, embed your systems, all of that. But you've got the new owners. And and that's 
throws a spanner into the works, right? Like, because the, maybe the new owners feel they want to make a change after a year, get their own people in, you know? It wouldn't be the first time you see a new owner come into the club, completely change the culture, change the, you know, change everything about it. How long does Alan Stages have to impress to search to say, this is why I deserve to keep my job here and, you know, produce results? And it, it could it be as simple as benching Ollie Sale? Cameron Cook comes in and, you know, they're getting three points every week. If this becomes a consistent thing, like how long is it before Cameron Cook actually gets a start, honestly? I was going to say, it's, it's certainly going to be an interesting one. We've got to remember, though, they're three seasons without making the finals now. They finished ninth last and ninth across the last three seasons. And admittedly, they had some challenges off the back of COVID and all those sorts of things that threw some spanners in the works. But they also had Bruno Fornaroli for a couple of those years, and we saw what he could do on the weekend, and they still missed the finals. So... Is there that much expectation on Alan Stadgic to get them into the top three or four teams, or is it that finals pass mark? And again, the big unknown, as you said, Paletti, is certainly around the new owners, and it could be that new owners are looking to put their own stamp on the club, and it doesn't matter what he does, he could almost win win the league and then we move on, uh, moving on either, anyway, or it could be that they're, they're happy to give him a chance, and I think time will tell with that. Uh, they certainly couldn't get someone with much better pedigree in terms of his experience around the game as a whole, um, he's obviously spent time in a lot of the women's systems with Australia and with the Philippines and then with the Mariners as well. So if someone can do it, he certainly can. But, geez, Ollie Sale's really going to need to hit that reset button because that's going to be a real kick in the pants. You'd think if you're going to get up for any game, it is the game against your former club in week two of the competition. And he certainly didn't do that. I have a thought. We know a lot of you know athletes are very superstitious, right? That they like to do everything the exact same. They don't want to. They don't want to change anything. Does Ollie Sale need a haircut? Will his form turn around if he gets a haircut? You're basically calling him Samson. Is that what we're getting here? Um, we're going biblical with this sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but hey, let, let's let's look at the other side of the equation here. The experienced goalkeeper is sitting on the bench for Wellington, and look look at the result they got. So maybe it is um, the the call that Stajic makes just brings him back a peg, and you know, because Ollie's gone over there on a, on a you know a pretty yeah, it was a big move for Perth to go and drag him out of Wellington. He obviously didn't do that for the same money, I wouldn't have thought. So maybe it is just that he mm. might have gotten a little ahead of himself. He's still got plenty of years ahead. So maybe Cook coming in is, is the go. I guess we'll see. But maybe a haircut in the meantime. I don't mind that, bloody. <laughs> Definitely be interesting to see how he uh, reacts from his first two weeks. Okay, we'll move over now. Central Coast Mariners 1, MacArthur FC 2. Paletti, you and I were discussing last week that perhaps the Bulls would struggle a little bit after their short layover from the AFC Cup. Uh, but Chris said they got the job done. You know, Central Coast Mariners, we had worries uh, last week about Kaltak and Quoll. They both started. MacArthur were forced to rotate. They, they started Davia on the bench, but they got their first win. Certainly interesting to see both these sides coming off the short turnaround, but the travel for MacArthur, they didn't seem to miss a beat. Uh, it's probably the best we've seen of them across the, the preseason and, and even now and even in their AFC Cup games. Uh, they took it took the L on the AFC Cup, came back across, and this is where this is where they've turned up. They've turned on a show, and Central Coast just couldn't really go with them. It was interesting. The Mariners found their way to Brian Caltech to find the way to the net, which was great to see uh, the Pacific International getting his way onto the score sheet. But MacArthur looked really strong uh, for good periods of this game. I have to say I was a little disappointed, though, from a Central Coast Mariners point of view. They'd seen a team that buried six goals during the week and they still didn't get a crowd on a, on a sunny weekend day for a uh, what is a New South Wales derby. That was probably the biggest disappointment out of this game for me. Yeah, I mean, we all give, you know, stick to MacArthur for their crowd numbers. But, I mean, the Mariners were breaking records last year. They've had one, they had one loss this season. And, you know, it was, it was round one away from home. Like, this is when that momentum needs to carry around. Like, they presented the trophy, you know, brought it back to Gosford after winning it for the first time. Just keep that momentum going. Keep that sold-out, you know, those sold-out crowds going. Like, I'm not necessarily saying, you know, a sellout was probably, you know, the expectation for this game. Like, that's a pass mark. But, like, Sunday afternoon, it's sunny, 10K? minimum given everything they achieved last mm. year is that too lofty does it need to be 7500 the pass mark i mean it's even still nowhere near that 
Well, we, we talked about the sporting implications of, you know, losing their coach, Nick Montgomery, and losing players, you know, Jason Cummings, Triantis, these kind of players. But, you know, perhaps that has an impact on the fans as well, you know. They've seen their team have this success that they don't get too all, you know, they don't get all that often, I should say. And, you know, they see the core of that team that's brought them all the success ripped away. You know, maybe they're not expecting the Mariners to do this, uh, do so well this year. Yeah, but this is this is one of the many clubs in the A-Leagues that don't make money. We saw Richard Peel come out last year and be reasonably transparent with the numbers of, yeah, this is how much money we lose each season. These are the benchmarks we need crowd-wise to start to look to break even. So if you've got a side willing to come in and pay a significant transfer fee for Jason Cummings, for Triantis, for, you know, all these talented young players. If, you, if your club's not turning a profit, how can you be in a position to turn these down? Every single, you know, every single line that comes in on the balance sheet helps keep helps the club survive at the end of the day. And I think it, and unless, you know, these crowds start turning up every week, they sell out every week, this might just be you know, something that the Mariners fans will have to get used to again is that players are going to go well for a season or two. There might be some success and then they're going to get sold off to go elsewhere. And there's nothing wrong with being a development club. There's basically every club around the world is a development club for someone else at some point. If you don't want to see all these players leave, turn up every week. I think in terms of the dub, like we knew that the crowd attendance was going to like pick up. Um, There was going to be a massive boost. We knew that already. But with the men, I think perhaps we were expecting sort of a bit of that momentum as well. And I don't think it's sort of come in the same light as it has with the women. And I think maybe one of the reasons why it hasn't is because there's so much focus on youth. I think that might be maybe one explanation. I mean, you look at, you know, 10 years ago when you had those marquee signings like Del Piero, Shinji Ono, Heskey, et cetera, Obviously, that put bums on seats. And now, you know, you've got clubs like Adelaide, Central Coast, obviously still, you know, applying the youth, sort of, you know, emphasising on youth development. But I wonder if that's a reason why that's, you know, not attracting, you know, the fans that we're capable of, you know, attracting. Chris, what's your read on on the crowd numbers? I think we got a touch over 50,000 into round two this weekend. And as Christian said, we've had this history in the A-League of big names coming in and getting crowd numbers. But then, you know, they can be hit and miss. You know, a couple of weeks in, people realise maybe they're not getting the same quality that they were expecting from those names. So then the attention has shifted to getting these kind of lesser-known marquees in, but now crowds are suffering. Yeah, I certainly think there's um, there's a tie in there. I, I think as well, though, if we just simply did graph the team's ladder position versus their their crowd and, you know, use the baseline because we do know that some of the bigger clubs get bigger crowds. It's pretty straightforward. It's only a few years since Newcastle sold out a grand final and nearly every every home game on their run home. Now they'll struggle to get... They, they might be lucky to get a similar crowd to what Central Coast got, 6,500 at a 30,000-seat stadium this weekend for a double header. So it, it is one of those pieces. It is the reality of where we are. Could we look at boutique grounds? And I think we talked about this when we looked at the season preview for the dub. It's going to be a challenge. But again, as we touched on, if people want their clubs to be successful, you've got to follow them through the fair, uh, through the famine, as well as when the, the good times are there. So it's a challenge. And I'm sure I'm preaching to the converted on this podcast in terms <laughs> of it. But we need to get out there. We need to sell the game that we've got. And we need to understand that some of these stars are better than bringing in a 37 or a 38-year-old. And admittedly, we were blessed with some of the ones. But tell me right now, why would you pay? Why would you get more bums on seats for Mario Jardel than you do for Nestoroy Irukunda? Even on social media today, um, I saw an article pop up. It was actually a good article. Um, it spoke about, you know, how 59,000 attended the Matildas against the Philippines. And then, you know, we had those three, you know, they were they were epic games, really. They were fun, entertaining to watch, and that didn't, you know, get the limelight, which is fair enough. You know, the Matildas are obviously big. Um, yeah, we know how big they are, but it's there's a lot more, you know, behind the scenes, such as, like, you know, the marketing, people commenting, saying, you know, we don't know when the games are on, et cetera. So, like, yeah, there's a whole lot of stuff, you know, that needs to be sorted. You know, it's not just, you know, the players, et cetera. It's, yeah, there's a lot. It is a chicken and the egg, though, right? It's, it's one of these situations where we've got clubs that are, 
struggling to keep a profitable balance sheet, but then to make that balance sheet more profitable, they've got to find some money to advertise. And, you know, again, being based in Newcastle, it's, I, I see it before my eyes. We've got a club looking for an owner at the moment and has been for a number of seasons. They're owned by four other clubs in the league and people are saying, oh, well, you're not advertising, you're not doing this. Where does that money come from? Because then when you go and run up another million dollars in debt and instead of trying to sell the club for $15 million, you're trying to sell it for $16 million just to break even, you've got even less suitors. So it's a vicious cycle. Do we need to come to an acceptance? Let's go back to, you know, obviously not quite the NSL days, but the NSL we used to get here in Newcastle, 4,000 people packed out in a boutique stadium that's now a greyhound track. And it was rocking at the seams. And we've seen it. We saw Perth last year at Macedonia Park. The scenes of some of those games were absolutely epic. Do we need to readjust our reality and maybe make a bit of demand, maybe make some fans miss out. It sounds like a horrible concept, but it happens in Europe. Admittedly, they've got a lot bigger following than bigger stadiums, but play games at 5,000-seat stadiums to make it so that there is a bit of demand. And then when we continuously outsell those, then we can move them to some of the bigger grounds for some of these teams, especially teams that are in markets where they might not have the option that a Sydney FC does to play at a 20,000-seat stadium. Australia has this fascinating culture of walk up on the day and you can get a ticket for the most part. And, you know, everyone, like, I see the queues, you know, halfway down Driver Avenue, you head to the Sydney Football Stadium on match day. People turn up, get a ticket. They know there'll be some available. And that's for every sport, right? Bar maybe, you know, AFL, MCG, if you've got one of the big couple of teams playing. But for the most part, it's you can walk up on match day, get a ticket, no questions asked. Like, Campbelltown, the line sometimes back to West Leagues Club entrance. And if you know the Campbelltown Stadium area, that's oh, probably a good 100 metres away from from where the from where the booth is. Like, you just walk up on match day, get a ticket, thanks for coming. You, you create that scarcity, you create that demand, maybe you sell more memberships, guarantee, you know, people want to guarantee themselves a seat. For me, what Newcastle is missing, and it's only because you, you know, you brought it up as a good example of you know a club without ownership playing out of you know McDonald Jones as well. That's like what twenty eight thousand give or take. Thirty, yep. Yeah, so there needs to like in Newcastle, there needs to be some sort of situation where it's not one extreme or the other. Like it shouldn't just be McDonald Jones Stadium on one end, number two sports ground on the other end. Get, get something in the middle because mm. the women can play at number two sports ground. I mean, it's not the best of grounds, but, you know, it doesn't have the broadcast infrastructure for the men's games. It's too, McDonald's Jones is too big. Where's that 15,000 seats taking you in the middle? Keep your eyes peeled, Paletti. Later this season, the women will play some games at Maitland Sports Ground. It's currently about a 7,500 capacity with an oval on the far, oval shape on the far side. If the council can get some support, people can get bums on seats. I can tell you now, Maitland Council will fund that and that will turn into a 12,000-seat setup, which would be absolutely perfect for the Newcastle Jets and it would create exactly what you want. It's a little bit out of Newcastle by 20 minutes, but that's what some of these smaller clubs need. Yeah, like a 20-minute drive is nothing. If you go into the football, like that's absolutely nothing anyway. Like number two sports ground isn't exactly the easiest to get to anyway like because hmm. you can't park on site. So... Well, it's a debate that we've been having in Australia for a long time and I'm sure it will go on for a while yet, but we'll leave it there for today. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the A-Leagues of Our Own podcast. We'll be back later in the week with a dedicated episode on the Matildas. Goodbye.